Welcome to the Converge Community Church Podcast, where we provide for you the previous Sunday morning sermon. And now without further ado, may the Holy Spirit minister to your heart as you hear the preaching of God's Word. Thanks, Fred. Good morning. Anyone else? Good morning. Um, It's good to be with you uh, this morning. You know, as I've been spending time preparing for this message, I've spent a lot of time in this word and thinking about the value of sight. What a gift it is to be able to see things. Like driving here on the way, I'm having all these thoughts like, man, every, like the world is so beautiful. And yet like, but then I'm thinking, oh man, it's beautiful. But I often like, even when I see it, do I really see it? Like, am I admiring it? And there's just all these layers of sight. And, and I think it's a real gift in, in many ways to, to be able to see. Uh, I think it's also a, a great gift to um, be able to see ourselves rightly. And it's a great gift to be able to see our Savior rightly. And I think our text will be moving in that direction. I, I've, I've preached it once now and taught a Sunday school. I'm, I'm pretty revved up. <clears throat> it's a great text. But uh, before we, we jump in, we, we ought to spend a little bit of time reviewing where we've been, what Matthew's doing, what he's all about. And so we've had this main idea that the pastors, uh, we, we came up with this, this motto, main idea, whatever you want to call it, uh, for the book of Matthew. We think Matthew really wants us to get this, that we should follow the promised king into his kingdom. That, that's what Matthew desires for his readers. Follow the promised king into his kingdom. And unpacking this main idea over the last year or more has meant looking at the text and trying to answer some of these questions. What does it mean to follow this king? In what ways was this king promised? What kind of king is he? And, and what kind of kingdom will he establish? And what, will, what, are, what are the people in his kingdom to be like? And, and those last two questions are something Jesus has, at least most recently, been spending a lot of time unpacking. Chapters eight, uh, really 16, 17, 18, 19, and, and 20. And, and really, the teaching has been that many of the values of his kingdom are inverted or opposite to the kingdoms of this world. So there's this inversion happening, and we'll, we'll dive into all that. But starting next week, Jesus is going to step foot into Jerusalem. And it's kind of the beginning of the end, as they say. It's his last week, and he knows exactly what's going to happen. He's going to suffer, die, and rise again. He's predicted it three times. And, 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 but before we get there, we, we have this almost strangely placed narrative about a healing of, the, of two blind men. And, and I say strangely because, well... A few reasons. Uh, Jesus heals people all the time, uh, and he's already healed blind men on a number of occasions in Matthew. This is not really a, a, a section of Matthew where miracles have been actually happening that much. You know, chapters 9 and 10, tons of miracles. But this has been teaching, mostly, interactions with people. And, and so it just feels like, whoa, all of a sudden, this is kind of out of the blue, uh, a, a healing miracle to, to kind of wrap up a teaching section. It's just, what, what's going on here? Um, what, what is this story doing? Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time thinking over that question. So for now, I, I'll just suffice it to say that 
Matthew, I think, is in some ways at least writing about physical blindness as an image for failing to or being unwilling to clearly understand something. So physical blindness is an image for not perceiving something clearly or not understanding something rightly. I think that's what he's in some ways getting at. Let me give an example. You know, a friend of mine recommended this book. We're reading it together. And in the book, there's a a large section about this period of time called the Enlightenment, like the mid-1700s. And this period of history was named the Enlightenment because it supposedly brought light, enlightened the world through science, through the spread of knowledge, phenomenon that were once mysterious were now able to be explained Science and reason and philosophy were being elevated. And and the thought leaders of this time, you know, like Voltaire would be one, Isaac Newton would be one, um, and there's many others, but I'm on the spot, so I can't remember them. Um, These thought leaders of the time considered themselves, uh, with the exception of Isaac Newton, many of them considered themselves, in their own words, uh, the high point in human history. Unprecedented in intelligence, and plainly a gift to human history. While certainly they did see some things very clearly, and we owe much to them, they also failed to see other things, like their reliance upon the former discoveries of the the thought leaders of times past. Uh, Isaac Newton actually said this. um, He was one of those enlightened thought leaders that maybe saw rightly. He said, if we see further, it is because we are standing on the shoulders of giants which was not a sentiment held by everyone in that time period. So, so there's a blindness in these enlightenment leaders, which is, um, I guess, actually pretty normal. Um, over 2,000 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah said something similar. He used the same imagery of blindness when prophesying about a group of people who would have eyes but failed to see and ears but would fail to hear. Now, in mind, he had the people of Israel and, and the religious leaders specifically, but it may just as easily have applied to the leaders of the Enlightenment, and it may just as easily apply to you and to I, me. Um, as humans, no matter the time period, we have an amazing tendency to misperceive reality, and we have an incredible ability to favor ourselves and our opinions, and, and so we too can have eyes while not seeing reality clearly. So as we dive into the text this morning, this is kind of my main idea for the text. And I hope, I hope this is something you crave. I hope this is something that sounds appealing. Um, and I hope that the text convinces you of that. But it's this. Cry to Jesus for mercy. Cry out to Jesus for mercy and follow him with lowly hearts and open eyes. Cry out to Jesus for mercy and follow him with lowly hearts and open eyes. Uh, that'll appear on the screen a couple of times at least, I think. Uh, And if you're a note taker, this is kind of the order of how we'll work through things this morning. We'll start by setting the scene, reading maybe the first verse, talking about the context, verses that came before it, all that stuff. Then we'll we'll read about the story of the the blind men crying out to Jesus, followed by Jesus' response of pity. And fourthly, we'll spend time reflecting on our own spiritual sight or lack thereof. Um, so with that, um, I'm going to read our text. It's pretty short. Um, but as I, as, before I begin, let me invite you to stand if you're able, 
Uh, we, we do this here because God's word is a precious gift and, and we honor it just in a small act of, of standing. <clears throat> so, starting in, in Matthew 20, verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Let's pray as we stand. Lord, we praise you. Uh, your, your word, the, the words of eternal life, we, it, it's hard to, to give thanks enough that, that you've preserved such a word for us this morning. You are merciful. God, I, I pray that in the next however many minutes that, that the comfort of your love, the certainty of your love displayed on the cross, that that would give us a courage to, to see our sin for what it is. That we wouldn't have to be afraid of, of confessing or turning from sin because there's mercy with you. Would your love give us courage to cry out to you? Open the eyes of our heart, Lord, we pray. Amen. Be seated. <clears throat> so, if you've, if you've got a Bible, uh, I would suggest keeping it open. I'm, I, I didn't get as many things projected as I'd probably have liked, and that's my fault, not the projectionist. Um, so, when we, or I should say, when I read through the Gospels, this might not describe you, but when, my favorite parts of the Gospels are when Jesus gets to teaching, yeah, I feel like that's the meat, and, and, and I can just chew on it for a long time. Like, Jesus pierces through to my soul, and it's, it's the good stuff. And so, uh, just having finished these awesome teaching sections, I, I'm, like, really chewing on it. And, and, and then when I get to a section like this, I kind of gloss over it, right? Like, yeah, Jesus heals people. I know that already. Like, I just, I just move on quickly. And I think that tendency, maybe some of you have it, like, the miracles, are, it, it's harder for me to Get, like, get as much out, I guess you could say. But I think it's a mistake to gloss over them. A specific, I mean, in all cases, but this morning I think it'd be a great mistake to, to gloss over too quickly our text. So I'm grateful that I got assigned to preach it because there's much here to consider. So, for example, consider that in chapter 9 of Matthew, there is almost an identical story like this. Two blind men crying out to the son of David for mercy. They're crying the same thing. Two men wanting the same thing, and Jesus heals them. So so because Matthew already made the point that Jesus has the authority and the ability to heal blind people, I don't think that's his main point here. We've already been convinced of his, his ability to heal. Okay? Or consider again. While it is true that Matthew may have recorded this because it actually happened, right? This, this happened. When Jesus left Jericho, there were blind men sitting there. 
But there's lots of things that Jesus did that aren't recorded in the Gospels. John says that in, in John 21, 25, that there are many things that I have not written. And, and if I were to write about them, you know, there wouldn't be enough ink in the world to, to fill and enough pages to fill, you know, like all that he did. And so there are things that Jesus did that aren't here. So why did Matthew preserve this one? And why did he put it right here? It's probably not just a commitment to recording everything that happened. Likely, the best explanation for the presence of this miracle right here in the text at the end of a major teaching section is that it serves to illustrate and, ex- and further explain the points that Jesus has been making. So, so let me, I guess, kind of illustrate. What are the points that Jesus has been making? Here's a, a couple highlights. There's more. I'm sure I missed. But going back to chapter 16, verse 25, Jesus says this. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Kind of an, in, like, that doesn't make, that's interesting. Inverted. Okay. Chapter 18, verse 4. Whoever, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's inverted. Okay, that's interesting. Chapter 18, verse 33. This is when the, the parable of the unforgiving servant is being shared. And the, the king says to the servant whom he showed mercy, he says this, Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? It's a pretty big teaching point. Uh, chapter 19, verse 30. Jesus says this, Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Okay, Uh, whoever would be first among you, this was similarly in chapter 20, verse 26, whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the son of man, talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So these are some of the main points Jesus has been teaching And it is after teaching such things that all of a sudden, Jesus is walking for the last time to Jerusalem, knowing he will meet his certain death and resurrection in order to save others. He's surrounded by a a large crowd of pilgrims going to Jerusalem for the Passover. And they're all gathering around Jesus, eager to hear what he's going to say, eager to maybe be healed. And soon we're going to meet, I think, our main characters other than Jesus, the two blind men seeking to be healed. And it is this story that in some way, it seems, will illustrate and illuminate what Jesus has just been teaching. All those things, all those confusing things. So with that, I think we're, we're ready to, to dive into our text. We, we meet the blind man, uh, the blind men eventually. And this is interesting. They're not given any names. In other gospel accounts like Mark, There's not two men. Mark only writes about one of them, and he gives them a name, Bartimaeus. But Matthew, who certainly would have known that, doesn't include it. Okay, just an interesting side note. I don't know how significant it is, um, but perhaps Matthew's point is that they don't need to be known, that they're, they're not all that significant, right? So anyway, let's just you can tuck that away for now and consider it later on if you want um, as we consider how this miracle is here to teach something. So there's two men, no names. 
And these men are seated alongside the road, uh, as blind men often would. And even though they are blind, they, they weren't fools. This was a very good time to be perched alongside the road. People were coming to Jerusalem in droves. Huge crowds would have been normal. This was a great time to collect money and, and alms. Pilgrims would be uh, probably feeling generous as well as they're reflecting on the Passover, right? God showed them mercy from, and brought them out of, uh, out of Egypt. And so they're, they're probably going to give a little bit more money. These two blind men are, are being strategic, uh, it, it, to say the least. But as the crowd passed, somehow or other, these blind men heard that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And, and word had been going around about Jesus for three years. So this was not the first time they heard about him. Uh, they knew that this Jesus was no ordinary man. And evidently, they believed that he was not just another rabbi either. Um, for when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they began to cry out loudly, Lord, they, they want to get his attention. They didn't know where he was because they're, they're blind, but they knew he was around and this was the chance of a lifetime. They were desperate and, and so they were crying out, Lord, Lord. And this is where things become curious, at least to me, and interesting, compelling. Notice what these two blind men are begging Jesus for. It's not bread or money because they do need those things. That's why they're there. But in fact, even at first, you could, we could squabble about this later, but at first, they don't even explicitly call out for healing. I mean, they could have said that, Lord, heal us. We're blind. But, but they cry out for mercy. For mercy. Lord, have compassion on us. We know you don't have to, but please show us pity. I mean, the desperation of these two men was probably second nature for them. Because, I mean, their, their, their life pretty much depended upon the undeserved compassion or generosity of others. They were unable to work many of the, the other jobs for, for their livelihood because of their blindness. But the crowds rebuked them. The, the blind men quiet, uh, or the blind men did not quiet down, thank, thank the Lord. Uh, but these blind men were rebuked by the swarming crowds. And, and I'm not really sure why. I mean, this, this reminds us of the text where the parents or the, the people were bringing the kids to Jesus and the disciples said, don't do that. And he says, no, let them come. This, it's similar language. Uh, and so why are the crowds now saying, stop, stop crying out to him? And, and I can only make a, you know, a guess. And my guess is based on what we've just read in the chapters before, that they were thinking that they, or they were of the mindset, we were, we were here first. And, and, and there's no cutting in line. We've been traveling with them. You two men will have to wait because Jesus is in the middle of attending to others. Uh, first people first, right? And you put it like that. I mean, just imagine if our two blind men had quieted down after that. I mean, how tragic would it have been if they had given in to the idea that Jesus didn't have time for people like them? That would be a tragedy. And how tragic is it when we believe Jesus operates like that, that he deals only with the most important people and things or real problems? That would be a great tragedy, a great tragedy, because we would miss the very heart of God, the compassionate heart of Jesus. 
But these blind men, fortunately, seem to have learned more about Jesus than the crowds, and they seem to have learned more about Jesus than even his disciples, in my opinion, because they kept crying even louder, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, Messiah. They knew this Jesus was the kind of man who would take notice of them. They knew it. And so if they could just get their voices heard, if, if they could just get his attention, man, this, this, was a, this was an opportunity. I mean, they were desperate, I think, for, for two reasons. One, they knew their condition was not great. They knew blindness was not optimal, but they also knew how important it was to have Jesus near, to have someone who loves to show mercy so close by with so much power. And so they are just, they are crying loudly to get his attention. And, and friends, let me encourage you or exhort you to take up the practice that these blind men have. And that is, I'll call it a posture of persistent desperation. A posture, let us, let us learn to be of the mindset and of the heart of having a posture of persistent desperation. Now, let me kind of unpack what I mean by that. I don't mean just asking, making a request over and over and over again. Because the disciples have kind of been doing that, right? They, they wanted to be exalted, uh, and they're asking, hey, how do we become great, Jesus? And he told them. And then, you know, Peter's like, yeah, but we're going to have thrones, right? Because we left everything. He says, sure, you'll have thrones. And then they're asking, well, can, which thrones can we have? Can we have the nice thrones right over here and right over here? They're asking and asking and asking. That is not the posture I have in mind here. And that's not the posture of the blind men. It is a persistent appeal. Uh, I, I would say it's actually more like begging. <laughs> it, it's It's determined. It's a desperate cry for mercy. And, and ironically, you know, when I look at these two texts, the, our, our text this morning and the paragraph right before it, man, it is amazing. These two blind men could not see the world around them, but these blind men could see with greater clarity what was true of themselves and of Jesus. I mean, I, mean, I don't think they're the blind men in one sense. So then we, we kind of get to verse 34 with Jesus's reply, Jesus's response. And, and before we dive into his response, let's just consider he's predicted three times in great detail what's going to happen to him. And he's walking into the place where it's all going to happen. Do you think he's got a lot on his mind? <laughs> I, I think he would. And I think that just highlights the amazingness of his, of his pity. He stops. He hear, the, the crowds are like trying to silence these guys and he hears something go on and he stops and he calls the least, the last, the lowly to himself. He notices the sound of desperation. He always does. Um, psalm 72, I was going to, uh, this is a, a psalm that is in many ways a, a prophecy about what what the Lord's king will be like. So this is, a, in some ways, a prophecy about Jesus. And it's just so true in our text, starting in verse 12, 72, verse 12. For he, the Lord's king, delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Is that not true here? These blind men are precious to Jesus, which is just amazing considering what's going to happen to him. That's, that's worth pondering 
in itself. But then Jesus asks him a question, and this is where I really geek out about this passage, guys. Um, He asks him a very specific question, which might not sound specific to us, but in this gospel account, in the gospel account of Matthew, this question is only asked in with these words in this order twice. The question he asks is, what do you want? And he's not saying like, what do you want? It's, it's like a sincere, what are you, what do you desire? What do you want? And, 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 and so where else, where's the second occurrence? This is, this is where it's fun. It's in the, the previous paragraph. Jesus asks the same question only 11 verses apart. In the previous scene, it, that's where we meet Mrs. Zebedee, right? The, the wife of Zebedee, who comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, I want you to do something for me. And he says, what do you want? And, and she says, well, let me, before I get into it, I think this comparison is so helpful. Uh, in verse 21, the mother of James and John responds to Jesus's question by saying, in summary, I want thrones for my sons, status for my sons. I want them to have some rank in your kingdom. I, I believe your kingdom's coming. There's some faith there. And I want my sons to be with you at the top. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but what do the blind men want? Jesus asks them the same question. Well, they've already told us twice so far, what they most want is mercy. Uh, they're not concerned with status. If I, could just, if I could just have some mercy, that would be great. The, and then specifically when he asks them the question, what, what do you want me to do for you? He, they say, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Let our eyes be opened. There's faith in that too. But do you hear the difference I mean, this question is only in two places in the whole gospel account, right next to each other, concerning two men, James and John, two blind men. The parallel is it's intentional. Give us a throne versus help me to see. And it begs a really helpful question for us. What do you find yourself crying for? Is it status or mercy? Is it Positions of persuasion or pity? What, what do you go to God asking for? And, and maybe for some it's worth asking, are, are you crying out at all? <laughs> some of us don't feel that needy, so we, we don't really feel a desperation of any kind. I think it's worth reflecting on what you're crying out for because what we cry out for, I mean, that reveals our desires. That, that's what we want. <laughs> and that reveals our heart. And... <laughs> The state of our heart is really important because Jesus said not too long ago, unless we humble ourselves, unless we humble our hearts and think of ourselves as the least, we're not entering the kingdom of heaven at all. Unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's intense. And so considering what we cry out for is a very important thing for us to seriously consider. So before finishing this section on on the nature of the kingdom, Matthew wants to make it crystal clear what the right heart posture of a follower of Jesus is. And it is this, have mercy on me, O God. Help me to see. You know, I had a friend who 
who, whose life was taken by cancer uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I got to pray with him with a buddy one day before he passed, and, and, and he was not in, in good shape. I mean, he was declining very seriously. But we had a prayer triad, like a group, and we'd meet for, you know, every, every couple of months, and we just said, you know, Chad, can, how, can we, how can we pray for you right now? And he, he said, Lord, have mercy. And I just, I know it's a slightly different circumstance, but that's the posture. Lord, have mercy on me. And this man loved Jesus and um, honored to have, have been his, his friend. Um, Lord, have mercy. Help me to see. When you compare these two stories between James and John and the two blind men, I mean, we realize, I think, I hope now, there's actually two stories about blind men. Uh, James and John are the other pair of blind men, but it's actually not even just them. The the other 10 disciples are indignant. (laughs) They're mad because they all know they're getting thrones, but James and John got to the punch first, right? So they're blind as well. They're not seeing things clearly. Uh, The crowds also are spiritually blind, silencing the least. And it's not even just them. In the next section, Jesus is going to call the religious leaders blind. That's one of his favorite illustrations to use of the Pharisees. And it's not just them, as we said earlier. It's very possibly you and me as well. And so let the prayer, the request, the plea of the two blind men be our request of Jesus too. Lord, let our eyes be opened. Lord, let our eyes be opened. Help me to see. You know, I... Wrestling with a text is, is fun and, and scary in some ways. As I'm finishing up for the night, just making some final adjustments to the, this message, and I, I was like, all right, Lord, open my eyes. And I fall asleep really quick, like 60 seconds. Um, I know some of that's like, it's a, I consider it a gift. Um, but then like my dreams, I mean, the Lord opened my eyes. Like I, I almost woke up in a nightmare and it's going to, I won't even go into detail. It's just silly things. They're not really like terrifying, like horror level flicks or anything like that. But but the things that I, in my deep, like deep in my heart, like it's fear. I had, I had three things that like I fear in ministry and, and I like woke up from them and they're like, they're not big things, but the Lord is, I mean, answering my prayer. He's opening my eyes. I, I am terrified of, of, you know, being asked this kind of question or, or having this kind of thing happen in ministry or losing this kind of control of a, of a certain circumstance. And, and I'm, I'm like, Anyway, it's a, it's a pretty cool thing, though. It's a gift because I tend to justify it. It's one of those respectable sins I don't deal with, that fear. Like, I know it's a problem. I should probably deal with it. But I'm, what am I doing about it? <laughs> what am I doing? I just, I live in it. And, and, and so I pray that prayer and the Lord opens my eyes while my eyes are closed. Isn't that just crazy? <laughs> so, um, but it's a good thing. I mean, it hurts to be convicted of sin, but it's a good good thing and we'll, talk a little bit about that. But I mean, this is the kind of thing Jesus has been teaching all along. You and I, we we need a heart that knows it needs mercy. You need eyes open to a true knowledge of yourself, sin included. You need to know how deeply your own undeservedness is. And you also need to know how infinite his compassion is. You don't have to be scared of owning up to your sins, even the really dark ones, because his compassion is greater. I mean, these are the things we need to realize. These are the things we need to see clearly if we are going to cry out to Jesus for mercy and follow him with lowly hearts and open eyes like the blind men. Which brings us to our, our final um, scene, uh, the, 
the finale, if it, if you will. Be, and the finale, it's actually like, it's really amazing, but it's not that surprising anymore. So, so they cry out to Jesus. He asks them what they want. They tell him, and then you guessed it, right? He has pity on them. That's what Jesus does. He touches their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight. And this is, when I say he's been saying this all along, Matthew chapter 7, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open for you. For everyone who asks, receives. This is what Jesus has been saying his whole ministry. Ask, seek, knock. Because Jesus loves to show mercy to those who know how badly they need it. He his pity is unsurprising, and I think what's more surprising is, is how frequently we fail to ask for it. He's more eager to give, give it than we are to ask for it. But we'll come back to that in a moment. <clears throat> I also want to reflect just briefly on what the two men do next. They recover their sight, and, and they don't go running off telling people how amazing that power was, right? Because that's what the men in chapter 9 did, the, the other two blind men. And they're telling the word, they're, they're spreading the word everywhere. They these men don't do that. They don't run home to tell their family. After receiving mercy, they follow Jesus immediately. And that might feel like a foreign and weird concept. Devin got us going on a book in our life group, and I've kind of been thinking about it a little bit. And following Jesus in Jesus's day, like to follow a rabbi is like a really great honor. And not everyone gets it. It's the people who are like really accomplished in their, in their studies of the Torah, the Old Testament, and not everyone gets asked this. And so to follow a rabbi is a, is a big deal. And the desire of a disciple is, is, this is a cool phrase, it's to be covered in the dust of their rabbi. How do you get covered in the dust of someone in, in that time? You're just walking so closely with him everywhere he goes. That, and, and when you spend that much time that close to someone, it's because you want to be just like them. These blind men were, they received this mercy and their response is the only appropriate one. I want to, I want to show mercy like you show mercy. I want to be just like you. And so they get in line and, and man, I just love that. It was a first century Jewish blessing, that, that phrase, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And I just, man, I hope that's true of us. May, may we be covered in the, the dust of our savior by getting so close to him. So, as we wrap up here, just a, a few final thoughts. Um, first is a conviction that um, in all of us, there even, even followers of Jesus, as is clear with the disciples, there is a degree, varying degrees of spiritual blindness in each of us. Things that we aren't aware of that are out of sync with, with the heart Jesus desires. I say this because I believe our whole life is a process of Jesus kind of peeling back scales from our eyes and opening our eyes more and more to, to deeper and deeper sins. I've, I've got a, a friend, I'll call him. He would hate for me to say his name, um, but he's an older believer and he's been a believer for over 40 years. And, and what's crazy is hearing the kinds of sins he confesses. I don't even register them as sins. You know, he's like, oh, I just feel so bad. Could you remind me that person's name? Like, it's wrong of me. I, I should be caring for them and bringing them before the Lord. And, and I'm like, dude, you just forgot his name. Like, that's okay. But, but to this person, like, they felt like to, to fail to care for someone was, wasn't a, like, was a wrong. And, and, and I'm not saying that he was right or wrong, and we can, you can judge him however you want. But, but the reality is, 
the longer we follow Jesus, the more and more deeply he, he, he digs, right? The more he reveals in us. And that is a, an awesome thing. Um, and, and, and so to have the, the scales peeled back is good news if we are, in fact, interested in seeing. Um, our merciful Savior gladly peels back layers um, so that we can cast off sin. So the question kind of for us now is, where might you be spiritually blind? What blind spots might you have in this season of your life? And this can be a really difficult question. We'll, we'll acknowledge at the outset because seeing blind spots is pretty much always painful. Pretty much always painful because it reveals something I did wrong. There's something unpleasant about my, myself. Um, I don't, maybe this is a helpful analogy, maybe not. When I was in college, I, I had set up like lamps in my room because that yellow light was much more soothing than the white fluorescent lights above. And, and so I would, I would turn on my lamps, preferably, and I would clean up my room and I would, I'd look at them like, wow, this looks good. Inviting, like ready to have the guys come over, we'll watch a movie, play some games. And, uh, but if one of them walks in and turns on the fluorescent light, oh man, my room was not nearly as clean as I thought. I mean, that, that light is so intense. And, and I'm like, turn that off. I'm like, I don't want to clean. Just turn off the light. And, um, and I think there's something in that. Um, like, the, the closer we get to Jesus, the more we live in his light, the more that's exposed in us. And that, that's painful, but, but at least now I can clean my room a little bit better, right? I didn't see it before. Um, so I think we, we can find sin in us that is damaging to our pride, some, a sin in us that makes us lose a sense of self-worth. Um, and, and instead of enduring that pain, I think it's pretty inherent in all of us that it feels safer to retreat and, and not deal with it, which is a state of self-deception, right? It's turning the lights off again. I don't want to see it. it but I think there's a great danger in that, that response. There is a danger in willfully persisting and continuing in spiritual blindness. And, and, and there is a great danger in, in refusing to repent. It is, I think, one of the greatest dangers in the local church, and it's one of the greatest dangers in the global church. I think that a refusal to repent and a refusal to see ourselves truly can lead to hypocrisy, it can cause us to see one another in a, in a harsh light. It causes us to bite and devour one another. It, it ruins our witness to a watching world. And, and it is also, the, this, this, I think I taught this like the last time I preached, it is an opponent to your joy. A refusal to repent is actually not in your best interest personally. Um, let's see. Jack Miller is a... Is a Presbyterian pastor that Jeff introduced me to, and he had this really punchy way of saying things. And he said this, uh, one of his great quotes was, cheer up, you are worse than you think. Right? It's kind of funny, right? Punchy, you're all laughing. Uh, but that's only the first half. He says, cheer up, you're worse than you think. Why would I cheer up at that? Because God's grace is greater than you ever dared hope. It's greater you can be honest about your sin and how bad it is because God's grace has you covered. I think said differently, um, the failure or reluctance to see and confess sin will effectively starve you of mercy. 
because you will not receive mercy for sins you refuse to, to bring to Jesus. He wants to give you mercy more than you want, more than you want it yourself. And, and so we have to come to him. So best course of action, what to do now? We've, we've asked the question, what am I crying out for? Where, am I, where are my blind spots in, in how I follow Jesus? What next? Well, I've just got a couple thoughts. I don't know if they're the most organized, but here they are. Uh, number one, I would, I would admonish you again, encourage you again to, to really cry out to Jesus for mercy. And, and <clears throat> you know, there's a, a book I read a long time ago um, by a, a, an author named Thomas Watson. And, and he, he's actually in favor of like, man, our repentance, at least sometimes, should have tears. We, we should actually feel sorry. I mean, we know this when we tell our kids to apologize to each other and like, fine, I'm sorry I hit you in the face because you took my Cheerio. Like, you know, that's not a real apology. And so repentance is something that it ought to like, be reflected in our heart and our face. So Thomas Watson would say, one of the ingredients of repentance is sorrow and tears. And um, so when, I, when I'm saying cry out to Jesus for mercy, like learn that posture of desperate, de- uh, of persistent desperation. Um, it, this is a, a plea for pity, a request for mercy. Secondly, secondly reconsider repentance and the value it has. Repentance, yes, will bring pain to our pride, but it's the right kind of pain. Like when you break a bone and if you don't go to the doctors and it heals back wrong, it's going to cause you pain the rest of your life. And so they'll re-break it and, and set the bone so it heals right. I mean, that's in, in some ways the kind of pain we're dealing with. Repentance is a good pain because it brings healing. Uh, we must be brought low in repentance if we are to learn to cry for mercy. The lower we bring ourselves in repentance, the more mercy we are fit to receive. Thirdly, at your own risk, ask others. Because others often see us better than we see us. And the justifications that I tell myself and the way I dismiss my sin, it's not very convincing to them. They, they see all that, all that my sin is. And so consider... Uh, who, who, that, who a trusted fellow believer might be and ask them, where are, do, do I have blind spots that you see? And, and where might those be? And, and that will be painful. Just, but it's a good pain. And then fourthly, I, I think this is just responding to kind of our era of fast-paced everything. And it's slow down for self-examination. Uh, a counselor I like named David Paulison said this, Self-knowledge, or what we've been calling vision, self-knowledge is both a simple gift and a hard-won achievement. So what what does that mean? Recovering a true understanding of ourself, it's not going to happen on accident. Repentance is hard work, and and, and it's a gift from Jesus, too. Jesus gives us the gift of faith and repentance, but, but we participate in it, and it's work. So, so seeing myself truly is a hard-won achievement. And I think in our era, it requires a very intentional stepping back from the hustle and bustle. I mean, I don't sit down long enough to even think about my sin, let alone wait long enough to hear from God, right? We have to take seriously uh, 
another an, uh, an, uh, another author. I don't mean to be dropping authors' names all over the place, but um, one author, John Mark Comer, wrote a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and it's kind of the same idea. We need to ruthlessly eliminate this sense of hurry from our lives if we are going to seriously ask God, where, am, where are my blind spots? And then wait long enough to hear from him. I mean, we have to take seriously the slowing down, unplugging, uh, and I don't know what that may be, you know, what new patterns you might need to pick up, but um, you can ask the Lord about it. And then finally, I, I think I would encourage you to follow Jesus, the fountain of grace and mercy. He delights to, to serve and he delights to show pity, so, so get around him. Get in his word, get around him in prayer, talk about him once a day. What, I don't know what the pattern is, but, but get around Jesus, get in his dust, so that as you live in his light, you may see more and more clearly. With that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you not only because we need mercy, which we do more than we realize, but, but we come to you, we come to you because you love to give mercy. It, and so, God, in mercy, would you search us, as the psalmist says, and know our hearts Try us and know our thoughts and see, Lord, if there are any grievous way in us, any sins, and lead us in the way everlasting. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Make sure you come back next week to hear the next message in our series.